Hey there, and welcome to Living Through It, a podcast for interesting times. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, a recovering lawyer, world-renowned leadership expert, and lifelong progressive activist and organizer. Reminder that if you want to listen to this podcast ad-free, you can head on over to patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. You can get access to our entire back catalog ad-free there, and also we have some special bonuses for our most favored listeners. Thanks so much for being here. And now here's this week's episode. Welcome back to Living Through It with ECM, a podcast for interesting times. I am so excited about this week's interview. I will just tell you that as somebody who has followed our guest, Sarah Kenzior, online for a number of years now, this interview in particular felt really important to me. Sarah, for those of you who uh, don't know, has uh, written three books about the current state of affairs in American politics and American life. And one of the things that she's sort of known for on Twitter is predicting well in advance uh, how certain political events are going to play out. So much so that she's been nicknamed the Oracle by some folks who follow her. I will tell you that there are times where I have felt really pessimistic after some of Sarah's takes, and yet I had a feeling, because I've read her work and because she is a parent and a mother, that it couldn't all be doom all the time. And in fact, one of the things that I was really interested in diving deep into with her was how we keep going when things feel really dire and when they feel difficult and when we see so much corruption and so many criminal conspiracies around us. So I think you're going to get an awful lot out of this week's episode. I'm so thrilled to have Sarah as our second guest here, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Okay, and welcome back. I am so thrilled to welcome Sarah Kenzior to Living Through It. Sarah is the author of three books, uh, the most recent of which is a phenomenal book that I just finished reading last night called They Knew, How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. Sarah, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I am, um, I'm so amazed by this book. You know, one of the things that I I found sort of so stunning about it was the way in which it feels so personal. Um, You know, and I said to you when we were getting ready for this, that the book is, is really quite lyrical. One of the things that I found so um, honestly beautiful about it is that despite the tragedy that we're all living through right now, your profound affection for the history of America and particularly for the region that you live in just is woven so beautifully through it. And it's kind of interesting because knowing you only from Twitter, one of the perceptions that I have kind of had is that 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 you are a truth teller, which I want to talk more about, but also that so much of it is um, is so obvious and awful and painful. Um, and and the thing about this book is that it, it 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 touches both sides of that coin, right? About the beauty of America and the beauty, particularly of the Midwest, and 
the place where you live in particular and the iconography and the, even the geography of it. Um, why did you choose to write a book that that felt so intimate while simultaneously addressing so many global and national issues of crisis? I mean, most of my writing is written in this style, although I didn't really start writing in the first person um, until Hiding in Plain Sight. You know, I was an academic and I would always try to, to keep myself out of it. But it's one thing when you're writing about the rise of autocracy and autocracy in mafia states in foreign countries. It's an entire different thing when it comes home to you as an American, as a mother, uh, and as a writer. You know, with They Knew, I, I had a lot of um, creative freedom with this one in terms of uh, style. But I also knew that as our country gets more repressive, um, you know, as the media kind of consolidates toward what I see as a a pro-fascist agenda, and as a lot of uh, actual conspiracies become buried, uh, lyricism is kind of a safeguard sometimes. You know, it's a, a way to tell hidden truths and a way to convey painful subject matter um, in a style that people find more engaging and relatable and just easier um, to swallow. You know, I did not want to write Hiding in Plain Sight <laughs> Part 2 because with that book, I was so desperate to convince um, the American public of what was happening. And the sad thing is, I think I did. (laughs) Nobody did anything about it. But, you know, one of the lessons that I learned um, studying Uzbekistan, which is a country I studied for a long time, is that the truth tellers of that country and the folks who really kept the, you know, documentation of political change, they weren't the bureaucrats, they weren't the officials, you know, they were the poets, they were the songwriters, they were the completely independent journalists. Because in order to criticize, uh, you know, with complete truth, you have to remove yourself from that level of access uh, to a very uh, brutal, very repressive state. And unfortunately, um, you know, we're no Uzbekistan, thank God, but, you know, we're, we're moving in that direction. So, you know, precaution was taken as well in that sense. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting because one of the, I, I have a whole list of my favorite quotes out of this book, like, it, it, you know, I turned over corners and corners and corners the whole time I was reading and, you know, was outlining and underlining the whole way through. Um, because there's so many, there's so many moments that make really plain where we are. You know, one of them is um, is on page 109 and you're actually talking about the intersection of uh, what you wrote in Hidden in Plain Sight and what you're writing about now. And it's about this issue of nobody saw it coming. And I wanted to ask you a question about it. I'm just going to read it if that's okay with you. Or you, yeah, you yeah. know, yeah. Um, so uh, as I wrote in Hiding in Plain Sight, the oft-recited claim that nobody saw it coming is an admission of whom the speaker considers to be nobody. In the United States, nobody historically included women, immigrants, poor people, and anyone who is not white. People dismissed as nobody are those most likely to be affected by a terrible situation and therefore the most likely to warn about it in advance. Somebody is a a similarly convoluted category. For centuries to be somebody in the United States meant to be a wealthy white man or to be treated like one. This idea of somebody is baked into the founding of the country in which only white male landowners were granted the the right to vote. White landowning men who deviated from the establishment were often punished for their efforts, castigated as troublemakers or conspiracy theorists. The goal was to reduce them, at least in their ability to gain institutional support, to the status of nobody. So 
you know, one of the things that's just so fascinating um, to me about the book is that, in fact, as you lay out, we actually have seen all of this coming. The problem has been that the general public just hasn't had access to it or has been, you know, those who are truth tellers like you and I have at certain points been dismissed in various ways for drawing attention to it. And, you know, I'm wondering how that, how all of this kind of intersects with issues of supremacy, because in addition to the, all the corruption that you're pointing out in the book and the ways in which criminal conspiracies have worked historically in the United States to seize power from those who are disenfranchised, um, one of the things that is just so key to me here is that white supremacy is baked into everything. Um, and and the, the denial of the truth is designed to further marginalize people. Yeah, absolutely. I think the American people as a whole should be given much more credit for seeing this coming. I think the average American person saw Trump coming, saw autocracy coming, certainly saw economic decline um, and other travesties coming, and certainly understood corruption far better than the press did. Or if the press did understand it, I think that they were for it. They were perhaps you know, wanting to preserve their place in that hierarchy. And so it wasn't in their self-interest to discuss it. Or you know, conversely, they did want to discuss it, but were shut down by CEOs and upper management. I've heard those stories firsthand. Um, and a lot of it does come down to this designation of you know, being considered nobody, either by birth, uh, because of your race, your gender, uh, you know, your immigration status or so forth, or by your refusal or acquiescence to be a sycophant to power, uh, because we've seen, you know, exceptions made, uh, you know, by power brokers, if you're willing to go along with what is, you know, a white supremacist, uh, elitist platform, um, you know, and level of policy that disenfranchises the bulk of Americans. And so, what it takes, I think, um, you know, to have moral integrity in that kind of environment is to throw away uh, your reputation in a traditional sense and not look for prestige. I mean, prestige in Latin, it literally translates to illusion. And that's what it should be um, seen as, I think. And so, you know, when I think of men who've done that in the past, people like Elijah Lovejoy or, or John Brown, and, they, you know, they die these terrible deaths, like, you know, this is um, obviously not the outcome I want for the men of today. I guess the point I'm making is that while the conditions are often delineated by race, gender, uh, religious affiliation, you know, things you're born into, the actions you take are determined by you, you know, by your moral core and by your willingness to look out for others and by your willingness to not care whether you're labeled, quote unquote, somebody uh, by people who don't have any moral integrity. Yeah, I mean, and that to me is one of the really other fascinating things about the book. You tell these stories of these incredible investigative journalists throughout American history who have looked into, um, you know, things like criminal conspiracies in Washington, D.C. You know, it's funny, I, I went to law school in Washington, D.C. from 1994 to 1997. And in the earlier parts of the book, when you're talking about for instance, uh, you know, some of these high level conspiracies that mirror what Jeffrey Epstein was doing. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, how is it that I was living in DC five years after this happened? And I have only the vaguest, smallest recollection of this stuff. And, and part of it has to do with the fact that when, you know, people I think who are senior in media are implicated in some of this stuff or are being told you don't want to threaten or put off X person in power because what's that going to do to our ratings? we see this a lot today, that impacts how the truth gets out, right? 
And so I just want to say, you know, one of the things that's just so good about this book is it is such an emphasis on the importance of investigative journalism and on sacrifice. You know, I mean, I, I have not had the same backlash that you have had to the same extent, but even recently, I had someone who's a fairly prominent person on Twitter screaming at me, like, what do you do other than criticize the Biden administration about choice? And I'm like, but if I, if I'm not out there pushing the needle, if we're right. not out there talking about the way in which the ball has been dropped, like, what's the point, right? Exactly. Yeah, no, there's a long record of the dead. Um, and they knew, you know, the, the first category is, this is to my heart, it's investigative journalists who's tried to study a lot of the same things I did, and horrifically to me, a lot of the same people who I did. Um, you know, one of those journalists uh, was named Danny Casalero, and he was murdered on August 10th, 1991. And he was looking into Iran-Contra. He was looking into a uh, software theft uh, scandal called Promise. Uh, he was looking into Robert Maxwell, and, if he, and he was looking into, uh, you know, the remnants of the Meyer Lansky crime syndicate. And if he had kept going, um, he would have found Epstein, and he had found Trump, he had found Giuliani and Bill Barr. I, I've seen his notebooks. I've seen his personal stuff um, because it's it's here in Missouri. Uh, so I went and looked at it, and that was a very emotional experience for me, um, you know, to see his records, you know, boxes and boxes of them firsthand, to dig through them, to read his notebooks. And sometimes I, I would just sort of almost flinch or shriek even in horror because it was the same thing. It was the same thing that I had found. And they killed him at the same age I was when I was looking at all of that at 43. And he didn't get the chance, um, you know, to write his book, which is going to be called The Octopus, because he saw what I saw, which is, you know, transnational organized crime masquerading as a government, as I've said so many times. And so it's very chilling to me that there have been folks out there digging into this for so long and that their lives were abbreviated. Um, the artist Mark Lombardi was another one who basically saw 9-11 coming and he was murdered um, beforehand. The case you're talking about, the Craig Spence case, is basically a very, very similar case as Jeffrey Epstein, you know, a, a socialite, mysterious man of wealth and taste uh, situated in Washington, D.C., friends with the world's power brokers, uh, secretly blackmailing them as they get into, you know, pedophile trafficking relationships uh, with procured victims who dies of a, you know, quote unquote, mysterious suicide. And then the story is uh, eliminated from the media. And, you know, he died uh, in 1989. So it was pretty easy to bury things then. There was no internet. Uh, there was just print. And I was shocked because I'd been digging into Epstein since 2015. I didn't know about Craig Spence um, until about 2017, 2018. And when I went down that wormhole and I saw the parallels and the overlapping names, you know, people like um, Joe DiGenova, people in Trump's circle, they're, they're named in this case as well. I was just, you know, I was horrified by saying the same thing you did. Like, how in the world did I not know this when I've made it my business to know things like this? And it is a chilling thing. It makes me wonder, you know, what else is out there? And so one of the things I'm hoping with they knew is that folks do dig into these actual real conspiracies that we do not have all the information about. We don't have all the evidence about. But there's a fear of looking into them. And it's not just the fear of being murdered. It's the fear of being mocked. And I, I understand the first fear. You know, I too am afraid of being murdered like anyone else. The fear of mockery or scorn or even um, harassment, folks have to figure out a way to get past that because it's going to happen no matter how good a job you do. It's going to happen no matter how sincere your search for the truth and for justice is. You know, like, like what you just described, when you are just trying to protect 
reproductive rights. And of course, in order to solve a problem, you have to identify what the problem is. You have to identify what the obstacles are to solving the problem. You have to come up with creative solutions. You know, think your way around it. I do think there are ways out of the hell we're in. I wouldn't bother with any of this if I really thought we were doomed. I mean, that's what's funny to me when people throw that accusation my way. So like, seriously, who who would do this? Who would do all the stuff I do and take all the shit I take if they thought it was for nothing? Like, that's absolutely nuts. It's a terrible uh, waste of a life there. But I do think that at the least we can mitigate the, the damage and prevent some suffering. So of course we're obligated to try. Yeah. I mean, you say this great thing and I am... Um... God, it just like got me in the gut because this is exactly where I am with it all. Also, you, you said uh, we are living among accelerationists and I want to outrun them. We are ruled by people who abet mass death and I want to record my refusal. Um, and that in and of itself is a part of the importance of this moment, because if we're not speaking the truth, people don't understand what's really at stake. And so to me, you know, all of this and, you know, it's funny because you know, I've, I've watched you online get tarred with this thing of like, you're just a conspiracy theorist, right? I've had people come at me going like, you're a chaos agent for complaining mm-hmm. about what's working and what's not. And, and I think what a lot of people don't seem to grasp is that you don't put yourself in this much like public jeopardy, whether it's professionally or even physically, like I've had stalkers, I've had yes. to report, right? Um, without being c- completely committed to what it might take to to try to move the needle. And, you know, also with a simultaneously very realistic understanding that we as individuals, if we are not working together collectively, might not be able to do very much against this kind of power manipulation. Um, To me, the other thing that's really key here is the line that you draw between conspiracies and conspiracy theories. For me as a lawyer, this is really easy because I see things as criminal conspiracies. Like I drop them into the realm of like the, you know, the federal code, right? Um, I think that, I think folks need to get aware. And I think this nuance in the book is so important. It's one of the reasons why I really think everyone should read it, um, is the difference between the actual conspiracies that remain uninvestigated, right? About which we know certain things, but we don't, I don't think the general public has put together the whole picture versus, versus like conspiracy theories like QAnon, right? And, mm-hmm. and the line you draw here is very fine. But I think one of the other things that's really key here, and, um, you know, I just, I want to talk about accountability and I want to talk about January 6th, but one of the real key points you make here is that um, if, if real conspiracies are not investigated, and we don't have accountability for the crimes that have been committed, that actually makes us more vulnerable to things like QAnon, right? Like if the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing is not investigated and people are not held to account, of course people are going to become more vulnerable to the idea that there's this like transnational cartel of pedophiles running the country, right? Right. Because there was, I mean, there, there is it's just not the one that they've designated. And, you know, as I mentioned in the book, they sometimes get into this preemptively. Like that's what Pizzagate was. It was an attempt to make right. anyone talking about the actual group of transnational pedophile blackmailers um, seem crazy or have that be the first association. But yeah, we have real conspiracies and that should not be an outlandish thing to say. You know, the, the Revolutionary War was, in a sense, a conspiracy. The Civil War was certainly a, a conspiracy. Secessionist movements, the mafia, espionage, they all rely on conspiracy, which is just a secret plot of powerful actors. A, a, a conspiracy, by definition, 
uh, relies on obfuscation. It is not transparent or it would not be a conspiracy. It would be a policy. And so, of course, we don't know all the facts of it. And when you don't have all the facts of something, you know, you're left with a theory. You're left with partial evidence from which you try to find an explanation of what is going on. And, you know, as I know in the book, there is a time period um, in the 1990s where this was actually kind of a favorable thing to do. Like conspiracy theorizing entered the mainstream and, you know, a somewhat healthy way. It's never completely healthy because all of these kind of partial truths can be easily weaponized by horrible actors, you know, in which they just become propaganda hidden as conspiracy theories. But, you know, uh, some of those, the X-Files, some of it was uh, Oliver Stone in his better days. But I think a lot of it was the 90s were between the end of the Cold War and 9-11. And people felt safe enough to start digging into the past. I don't know if they should have felt safe. I mean, there was also things going on in Oklahoma City, Waco, the, the planning of 9-11 and so forth. But, you know, the general vibe was kind of end of history. And so people started digging into, into things, and there was a real kind of um, inquisitive nature, I think, to the American people. And it all got wiped away after 9-11. I think that was a big change. It's like, how dare you ever uh, challenge the official narrative? How, how dare you ever ask for more information, even though people on the 9-11 Commission were, were challenging the narrative of it and asking for more information, people like you know Senator Bob Graham from Florida and so forth. And since then, it's just gotten worse. I think because the Trump crime cult uses conspiracy culture uh, in such an effective way, you know, they utilize it in their propaganda. They have Alex Jones as their mascot, at least until recently. Roger Stone is a master of tabloid media, of social media. These are professionals. Like, I wish folks could understand that. These conspiracy theories that are weaponized, um, I come from people with professional backgrounds in deceit, you know, ban and stone. They spent their whole lives training this moment. So, of course, they're going to be effective. But the answer to that is, is full honesty. It's full and total honesty about the crimes that our government has committed. And I was encouraged in recent years from about, I don't know, 2017 to around 2020, I felt like we were moving as a nation in that direction, like certainly on uh, racial issues, certainly on the, the history of um, slavery and, you know, and other topics that people had literally whitewashed. Uh, there's beer in the backlash. Like we are in the backlash very hard right now. And that hurts us. Um, you know, it hurts any marginalized people, but it also hurts the general search for the truth and accountability because folks in power just absolutely do not want to touch any of these subjects anymore. They just want obedience. Yeah, I mean, I think back, you know, I lived through 9-11. I was in D.C. on the day itself uh, when the Pentagon got hit and got evacuated. And the thing that I remember from the aftermath of that, it, you know, that the moment that it turned was the you're either with us or against us moment, right? Yeah. Where George Bush said that on national TV. And the message was, don't ask why we didn't know, or if we knew we didn't do anything or, and you know, all the stuff that came out about the presidential daily brief after that and the warnings that were right there. And, you know, the, the idea that we should be allowed as a public to inquire as to why nothing was done on the basis of that intelligence, um, is something that I think has just bled through the last 21 years and expanded and grown mm -hmm. in the worst kinds of ways. I mean, so that brings me to kind of January 6th, because, you know, one of the things that you make really clear in the book about the issue of accountability is that the stark telling and search for the truth is one of the key ways in which we could kind of like right the ship 
Yes. Um, and, you know, you wrote the book before all of the January 6th hearings really started in earnest. Um, you tell this great story in the book about January 6th itself, where you were in your house and you had the television on and your kids and your husband were shocked and upset. And you had this moment where you, you walked into the kitchen and were like, oh, are we all just watching the kind of like overthrow of democracy? <laughs> Not realizing that you were so steeped in what was about to happen that the rest of us, and, you know, I had my moments of shock about it on the day itself, um, you know, had expected that something would be done to stop it with all the online chatter and everything that was happening. So I'm wondering how in the aftermath of that, you as someone who saw it coming, you know, we have friends who refer to you as the Oracle online, <laughs> um, how, how you feel the hearings are keeping up with that project? Because I know that I've been surprised about some of the things that we've learned and particularly about efforts by Jamie Raskin and others to really sort of like give us the full-blown picture and and the very clear use of media to do that. So what, how has it been for you? It's been mixed. I mean, basically having hearings is better than not having hearings. Having regular, timely, consistent blockbuster hearings that go into the full context of the crime and not just that one day, that one individual are better than the hearings that they've currently held. You know, they took a very long time to form that committee. It didn't form until July of last year. And then they had a hearing and then they went on vacation. And, you know, the fact that there is so much in the public domain, you know, that I I was not at all surprised. I mean, of course I wasn't. Like Roger Stone coined Stop the Steal back in 2016, and then he just re reused it. He used the 2016 plan in 2020. People made matching T-shirts. They were making hotel reservations with the help of Lynn Wood on the internet. Like I watched this play out for months. So I kind of thought, well, obviously others know that. And a lot of people did know it. That's the thing. And so my question has always been about the enablers. Like, who let this happen? Because we all watched the planning in plain sight. Like, this this was a conspiracy, but it was one where they decided to telegraph the evidence uh, to the general public. And obviously there's more to it. There's more behind it. There's text messages and, you know, private communications and so forth that the committee has examined. And that's good. Um, but I'm more like, well, you know, why do we have an FBI? Exactly. Uh, what were they doing? You know, what were all of our officials doing? Some members of Congress absolutely traumatized. By what happened? They were going to be assassinated. You saw someone planting bombs outside. What happened with that? I mean, these are really big questions, and they're not brought up that much in the January 6th committee. Broad's flaws, I think, has been fighting an uphill battle to get this discussed at all, particularly Raskin and Chip. You know, they've been in the forefront of saying to the DOJ, hey, uh, guess what your job is, and guess who's doing it? It's us, and it's really not our job to be holding these individuals accountable because we can't, you know, we don't have the, uh, you know, bureaucratic apparatus that, that one needs to do that, that Merrick Garland does have. So on one hand, I feel like they've done service. Um, I think they've done a good job in the hearings that they've held. It's just not enough given the, uh, you know, enormous nature of the problem and the crisis and the fact that so much time went by, like, as I know, and they knew when Biden was first proclaimed president, when he was proclaimed the winner, only 3% of Americans thought that he was not the rightful winner. And that includes all the Republicans. As time went on, and all these right-wing propagandists were challenging Biden's legitimacy, and no one was holding coup plotters accountable for anything, people began to think, well, if it was really an illegal, illicit coup, they, they would be indicted by now. Someone like Michael Flynn or Trump or others, Roger Stone, they'd obviously be in jail if this is real. So you know what? Trump must be right. This must have really been 
an illicit maneuver by Biden to get into office. They really fell for it. And it's because of the lack of accountability. And that's why that's so, so dangerous. Yeah, the delay is very disturbing to me, particularly somebody who used to be a federal court lawyer, right? Like I look at this and I'm like, in in some of these instances, let alone the sort of stolen classified documents situation, which is so cut and dried to me, I don't understand why he hasn't been arrested yet. Yes. I mean, it, the action in relation to this, um, you know, and the lack of action by the DOJ at the high levels of the conspiracy, because I don't want to dismiss, you know, they have arrested like hundreds of people who right. are actually present. The pawns. But if you don't go after <laughs> the organizers, you're kind of training them to do it again, right? And like, they're planning no- it. They're out there like, yeah. hey, we're doing two two, revenge of the coup. Like, uh, it's not subtle, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, so... One thing I want to mention really quickly, of course, is that one of the things we're trying to do here on the podcast is kind of like give people practical, realistic hope for how things can change. And I want to note that, you know, one of the things that you said when you wrote this section on January 6th and the events in your own household around it, um, it, it is about hope. Um, and I and I took it very much to heart because I, I walk this fine line of wanting people to have hope and optimism so they are organized and to do it even outside of systems, to not have hope for the systems that have failed, that are functioning as designed, that have kept historically marginalized people marginalized, that neglect and, you know, result in mass death. Like, let's not forget that's what's happened with COVID. Um, and, you know, again, that leave us in places where, um, you know, hope can feel like a drug, right? That's really actually not what I want to do. What I want to do is give people realistic, tangible, practical hope. So I want to talk about this issue of like, Opium, as it's described. Um, and there's there's a place in the book where you talk about it. Um, and I want to just like read it really quickly here because it, it's just, it's so key here. Um, in an emerging autocracy, you say, hope is dangerous because hope is inextricable from time. And an enduring strategy of autocrats is to run out the clock. That was the botched institutionalist strategy that led to the events of January 6th. A strategic, uh, sorry, a strategy of inertia masquerading as patience, of smugness sold as savoir faire. You cannot govern on hope and you cannot be governed by hope. Hope is a drug that gets you high on too many tomorrows. Hope is a flight of fancy on a hijacked plane. Hope leaves you lost in a fantasy future, sidestepping the embers of the president while they smolder. Hope leaves you placid and malleable like a child. And we all know how the American government treats children. I cast off my delusions that night and retreated into my documents and demands. So can we talk about hope as a practical strategy outside of current systems? Because I know you're not without hope, right? Like it's really clear from the epilogue of this book that, that there are, there are places and still moments for you where hope lives, however small they may be. And so I kind of want to touch on how you parse this because I know how I parse it. Right. And I think the way you parse it is a little bit different. I think it depends how folks define hope, because I think a lot of times Americans define hope as a wish or a fantasy and not as something that they're actively participating in. Because while I'm, I don't believe in hope, but I also don't believe in hopelessness. You know, I don't believe that things are, are preordained uh, to be bad. You know, I believe in compassion, in imagination, in empathy for others and in action. And so that's really where it is. You know, it, and maybe on a more spiritual level, like I have 
faith and I have resilience. And I think that it's illogical for me in this world to have resilience. It really doesn't make sense, but I do anyway. And so, you know, that's an act of faith. Writing this type of book um, is an act of faith. Bothering to have this conversation with you and you bothering to have this conversation with me um, is an act of faith. Because, you know, we want people to listen and we also want people to act. And I think that Americans have been told to be passive. We've been trained to sit back and kick back and believe that a savior is coming uh, in the form of a bureaucrat or in the form of Q or Trump or Biden or whoever, and they're just going to make everything work. And that is not how things go. And so reducing everything to like one man and one day, you know, whether it's election day or whether it's January 6th, is a very dangerous strategy because it has to be like an everyday way of life. You know, you have to have some kind of moral core or something bigger that you're striving for beyond, uh, you know, a bipartisan political debate or, or horse race politics that, you know, it's so cheap compared to, to what else is out there. Yeah, I, I mean, I love that. And I think, you know, one of the one of the things that this just it, it meets head on also is that, you know, the the collective choice of action actually really can bend the needle, right? You know, like yes. one of the things that, that you do talk about is that, you know, we've gotten stuck in these places where it's red and blue, everybody's one or the other. And the 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 reality of the diversity of America, and I'm not throwing like fascism into this. I want to make it really clear. What I'm talking about is the fact that like we're human beings and like we're all connected, whether we like it or not. And the web of, of the ways in which we are connected as a nation um, presents tremendous opportunity to me if we are able to actually work together collectively yes. to actually make a difference. So, um, okay, well, on that note, I'm going to ask you the three questions that we ask everyone. <laughs> sure. um, the first is what keeps you going? Oh, gosh. I mean, everything, like my family, my writing, uh, music, being out in nature, um, all the things I could potentially lose. You know, those, are, those are the reasons that I, I fight so hard for them is because there are so many things that I like and that that make me happy on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. I have to say, I think that this, um, uh, and you and I talked about this before we we got on here, but you know, I think this thing of motherhood and parenthood generally right now, mm-hmm. um, it's... I have these moments where I look at my kids and I think I, uh, I have these, not that I have any regrets about having them, but I have these moments where I'm like, wow, you know, like what we're living through is so traumatic and difficult. And what's the future of your life going to look like? And, and I have, I feel such an obligation to fight for their future. Right. Yes. 100%. And, you know, parents are in a real bind. I think our generation is in a really tough place right now, especially with COVID, you know, because we have elderly parents who, who are, you know, facing that. We have uh, children we need to look out for. We have climate change on the horizon. You know, we, we were born at a bad time. You know, we were born at a time where a lot of burdens, I think, fall on us. And we don't have a lot of support um, institutionally or otherwise. That's that's the way it goes. I mean, that's what I mean about resilience, you know, and finding something within yourself, like finding that, like you said, like an obligation, like a sense of innate morality. Like This is the thing I have to do. It's not for me. You know, it's for my kids. It's for other people's kids so that they don't have to do what we're doing. They don't have to fight the battles we're fighting. And I think this may be, you know, if if folks are listening uh, who are older, I think they're going to feel sad when I say this because so many women are fighting the same battles that women fought 50 years ago. And we have to fight them again 
Now, um, part of the reason that happened, it was a lack of, of vigilance. And I'm not blaming women for this. You know, I'm blaming sort of everybody. Uh, you know, a sense of this can't happen. You know, Roe can't be repealed. Women can't lose their rights. A sense that progress always moves forward. It's incorrect. You know, you have to really you have to move it forward. You have to push the, the pendulum or at least watch where it's swinging and be honest about its direction. And so, yeah, you know, we'll fight. We'll fight just like, you know, our ancestors fought because that's just what needs to be done. And they knew it. And we knew it. And hopefully our kids won't have, you know, such a hard haul. Yeah, completely. I mean, I, you know, I think about, um, you know, even for me, you know, because I'm, I'm only a little bit older than you, but we're both Gen X. You know, I think about, I was born before Roe was passed. I was born in 1971, the year before Roe was passed. And, you know, I, I, I will tell you that um, being raised by a feminist hippie mother <laughs> who like taught me about Cesar Chavez when we were waiting in the shopping center line, not buying grapes, right? When I was like four. Um, I, I know that there is, there is such a sense of loss um, but at the same time, I have this moment where I'm like, it's participatory democracy. Like exactly. nobody should have been under the illusion and I'm not blaming anybody, but I want to make it really clear. Nobody should have been under the illusion that you get to opt out because the moment you opt out is the moment where folks like Trump, you know, folks like, uh, you know, like all the, all the people Court. you go through, right? Like I'm sitting here thinking about the section of your book about the Kefauver hearings and like, you know, right. Roy Cohn and, you know, that all the dramatic historical chains that you string together in this book, those people are waiting in the wings for exactly the moment where the vigilance drops. And so, yes. um, yeah, I mean, my view is kind of, you get on this path and you don't ever get to step off of it. And that's the way it should be actually. Um, you know, I do hope my kids have an easier time of it, but, um, but we have to be in it. Okay, second question. What are the most pressing issues that need our attention right now in your view? I think I know what this is going to be, but I'll let you answer. It. <laughs> if you do, please share, because, you know, you, you sent me that earlier. I was tipped off and yet I don't have a completely clear response because I feel like, you know, we're facing a lot of interconnected crises, um, yes. you know, and the only way to solve them is, is to discuss all of them openly and also discuss the way they interconnect. But I'd say the main one is, you know, it, it's corruption followed by just cruelty and conformity, you know, which, which are upholding um, that state of corruption. And they also uphold, I think, that denial about corruption. You know, people are in, in silos, you know, they're trapped with um, the exploitation of their hope. Um, and so, you know, what I'm hoping with being new is that, like I said, I hope people, their mind gets freed up so they feel like they do have a civic right and a civic obligation to delve into corruption, no matter who is committing it, that that's actually a patriotic thing to do. It doesn't, you know, uh, it's not voter suppression or whatever you're trying to pass off investigation of corruption as. You know, folks who don't want cor corruption investigated come up with a lot of really creative excuses. But I feel like it's kind of the horrible, like, super glue that holds all of these disparate pieces together. Um, you know, and in terms of individual issues, though, if I said to pick one, I would say climate change, because it's a ticking yeah. clock, and it, that also is going to affect um, everything that, you know, we are facing. But if there's, you know, not even lawlessness, but just um, purchase of the law by malevolent actors, then it's very difficult to get anything done, including elections, including, you know, the... Um, maintenance of the other rights that we're supposed to have. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that has completely broken me as a lawyer. I'll just be really honest about it over the last six years. You know, I haven't practiced in a decade now, but, um, you know, you get indoctrinated into the idea that the rule of law is something that actually is meaningful, that it's a backstop. And, you know, I've really had this sort of, um, 
just real eye-opening moment in the last few years about the fact that it's just words. Like the law is just words. And if people with integrity are not out there actually like enforcing it, let alone making it more equitable and just, then literally people can just bulldoze right over it and keep going. Yeah, I used to do, um, you know, consultation for a group of Uzbek lawyers, like lawyers from Uzbekistan, who were trying to stop corruption, trying to stop bribery, you know, and they would help them strategize and so forth. But that was like one of the main things that they taught me. And so like when I come from a perspective of law, I come from the quote unquote law of uh, authoritarian regimes, which is, you know, the law is whatever we tell you at this given moment, the law is whatever fits our needs at this given time, whatever rights you have on paper, because this is important for folks to know that most autocracies on paper are democracies. They have democratic constitutions. They have a guarantee of human rights. They don't care. It doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter if the judge just, you know, rules in the favor of of brutal power, often because the judge is under threat. It doesn't matter, you know, what the the lawyer is there for. It's often just spectacle. It's public humiliation. And that is 100% the direction that the GOP wants to pull this country and has been pulling this country. And when you hijack courts, you know, that's the cage bars of autocracy. And I don't know, it's been very alarming. Like, I'm glad that, I'm glad to see your work because you're coming from it, you know, with this legal background, with this expertise, it's very specific, but you understand the big picture. And a lot of other lawyers despite all the evidence <laughs> that we've experienced over the last seven years, they still don't seem to grasp it. They still go on about, you know, a little protocol, this and norm that. I'm like, those are gone, man. Like you got to get a grip on things. Like this sucks. I'm sorry that your profession is, you know, circling the drain in terms of its uh, integrity, but you know, the way to get it back is to, to be open about that and figure out a way to rebuild it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think one of the things that um, that I've really had to have like my own come to Jesus moment about is the indoctrination of law school and the ways in which your whole identity becomes so wrapped up in the profession of it that when 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 all of this unravels, you you find yourself questioning, like, well, who am I, and was I complicit? And of course, I was complicit because I was indoctrinated into it, and I believed in the norms, and I enforced them, right? Um, and then at the same time, you find yourself trying to justify the indoctrination, right? Like, right. oh, of course, the norms are going to hold. Oh, of course, Merrick Garland isn't delaying for some reason that you know is 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 about like what he really wants, right? Or whatever. I mean, I have these moments where I just think to myself, there's actually no legitimate excuse for why we're waiting so long. And I know there are plenty of people out there who disagree with me on this, but I will just say that, you know, I tried cases. I I was involved in white collar cases and litigated them and, and, uh, and watching it fall apart like this. It's painful personally, but on the other hand, as you point out, like, you know, it's, like the, I'm just going to give you one more quote because this book is just full of them. The truth may hurt, but the lies will kill you. Yes. So, you know, like you got to tell the truth about it because the lies are more dangerous than the truth. Okay. Last question. Um, what do we need to be doing right now? I mean, I'm going to, obviously everybody should go buy Sarah's book. I, mean, I will just say that outright because it is such an eye opener and it's so brilliant, but tell me what you think we should be doing in our own communities and, you know, in our own networks of people right now. Um, for the sake not only of writing the ship, but our own survival. Yeah, 
Um, I mean, basically, I feel like our, our great crisis is also a great gift in that we're all in different places. We're all contending with different problems. You know, we're dealing with an overarching loss of democracy with entrenched corruption, loss of our rights. But depending on who we are, you know, where we live, it affects us um, differently. We also all have gifts. You know, we all have talents. We have things that we're good at and we have things we're interested in. So I always, you know, for people who feel like the whole world is on their shoulders and they're kind of breaking under that burden, because um, things are very hard now. Like, I don't want people to forget, like, we're also living through a pandemic. You know, the circumstances that we're trying to survive are genuinely hard. Go with your passion. Like, if, if you're interested in climate change, if you're interested in, you know, judicial reform or abolition, or, you know, interested in helping public schools, like, whatever it is, whatever that thing is, that's the thing you'll actually want to work on, even though everything is terrible. And whatever your skill is, if you're a great communicator, if you're a great organizer, like, do that thing. Don't be pressured into doing the other thing that you hate doing, that, that you know, you're uncomfortable with. Like, go with your own flow. Because the thing is, if everybody does this and we're all good at different things and we're all living in different places and bringing something to the table, that actually works. That is so much better than everyone doing one thing and thinking one way. You know, that is true democracy is, is we get to be different. We don't have to conform, but we're working broadly toward the public good, broadly uh, defined. You know, that's an America I could really envision. I don't think that that's a uh, hope, Kim. I don't think that's out of the question. I think that that's pragmatism. Yeah, I completely agree. It's that cross movement, cross identity, breakthrough push to make it better that I think stands the greatest chance of success. Okay, well, yay, this has been so wonderful. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, This is one of those conversations that just feels to me like it's so critical for us to be having at this moment. So I'm so grateful for you and for your work and um, for joining us here on Living Through It. And uh, we'll be right back. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so I hope you know now why I was so excited. <laughs> I really hope you were as thrilled uh, and and really inspired by this conversation as I was. I will tell you that it stayed with me for days after we recorded it. I am so grateful to Sarah. And I think one of the things that we can all take away from this really vibrant discussion that she and I had is what she had to say about the issue of faith and how we continue to carry on. And I think that one of the things that I would invite all of you to think about this week as you process this conversation and maybe listen to it more than once, because I know I had to, is to think about what gives you faith to carry on. For me, It's so much about faith in human beings who are on the same page as I am, faith in community, faith in organizing, and in people who believe in a better future. So for this week, think about what gives you faith to carry on. And I hope that you'll join us next week for our fantastic conversation with Drew Dixon, which will be about racism and how we survive sexual violence and how we carry on through trauma and past trauma and into healing. So thank you all very much for being here this week. I will see you all next week. And I wish you all a week of hope and faith and future building. Thanks for listening to Living Through It with ECM, a podcast for interesting times. If you want to know more about me, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, 
head on over to GaiaLeadershipProject.com, where you can check out all our in-person and virtual leadership programs for folks who want to create change at work, at home, and in the world. You can also read my essays on politics, law, and change at newsletterwithecm.substack.com. And last, but definitely not least, you can listen to all our episodes of Living Through It ad-free over on Patreon at patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. Thanks for listening and see you next week.